Now, remember back in high school, I had to do a summer book report project, and I don't know why, but I chose to read the biography of President Harry S. Truman, all 1,100 pages of it. I think I was fascinated since Truman was the first president and only president to drop the atomic bomb. But one detail of Truman's presidency I remembered that just kind of stuck out to me was that on his desk in the Oval Office, he had this little sign that read, the buck stops here. The buck stops here. It became his slogan. And the slogan, the buck stops here, refers to the expression of passing the buck, which means to pass along blame or responsibility for something to someone else. And that's pretty much the MO of normal politics, right? If things go right, you take all the credit. Things go wrong, you blame someone else. You you blame the the previous president if the economy stinks or there's trouble on the world stage. It was the previous guy's fault. Or you blame the other side. But I respected Truman's desire to lead with conviction. He understood the executive office and that you're the president, you're on the top. Who else can you really blame? The buck has to stop somewhere, and he was willing to take that stand and to take the heat that came with it. At the end of the day, you have to live with the consequences of all the choices and the decisions you make, especially in that office. And so with him, the buck stopped here. Unfortunately, though, in life, few people are like this. I think it's all too common to our sinful human nature to to pass the blame to others. It's so easy to do. People don't want to take responsibility for their actions. They would rather pass the buck and have someone else pay for their mess. People don't want to humble themselves, own up to their problems, and deal with their issues. It's just so much easier to blame your parents, blame your upbringing, blame your spouse, your kids, blame the government, and so on. Maybe there's a person with a raging anger problem, but he, he blames his wife. He blames his kids. They incite him to anger. They, they really make him do it. It's, it's their fault. This is called passing the buck. The problem of blame shifting and not taking personal responsibility for your actions and your sins, it's universal. And, and even Christians are not immune. Christians, likewise, are just as susceptible to not owning up to the sin in their lives and to pass the buck, although they might do so a little more spiritually, perhaps saying, well, the devil made me do it, or just that the temptation from the world is too much. The ultimate form of blame shifting, though, is to blame God. One might say, regarding their problems, that this is God's fault. He gave me these circumstances. He gave me this person. He gave me these desires. I can't help it. I have no control here. And so they blame God for all the sin in their life. But such a thought is anathema to James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, who tells us so in a very straightforward passage, that there's no doubt that God is not to blame for your sin and for your temptation. But James goes even a step further by popping the hood on our human nature, our fallen human nature, and showing us how sin works in us, where it comes from, who is to blame. And when it comes to your sins and your vices and all the ruin in your life that's resulted, James makes pretty clear that the buck stops with the man or the woman in the mirror. It's a lesson we need to learn. So open your Bibles now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Without exaggerating, when it comes to understanding our sin problem, We have today one of the most helpful passages 
James so clearly tells us how sin arises. Where does sin come from? Who is to blame? And how does the origin of sin in our lives affect our daily lives? Well, we're going to find out. James 1, passages, verses 13 through 15. Let's read those now. James 1, look at verse 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to death, or to sin rather. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In English, it's kind of hard to see, but... In the original, this, this passage is pregnant with carefully chosen imagery to, to get the point across and showing us the, the life cycle of sin. This passage is not just instructive, it's immensely practical as well. Because you can't hope to overcome the sin in your life if, if you don't know where it came from. And you can't hope to overcome the sin in your life if you just keep blaming others or blaming God. We need to understand and own up to the sin that lives within that we might truly overcome. And James is going to help us do that this morning. This passage is not easy to so elegantly outline, so I've opted for just a simple utilitarian outline with just a couple of points. The first is this. God is not to blame for your temptation. Simple enough. God is not to blame for your temptation. And look again at verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. James begins verse 13 with a a hard and fast command. Let no one say. It's a present active imperative. Meaning this is not a suggestion. This is a, a command. He's prohibiting Christians from ever reacting to their sin and temptation by saying it's God's fault. No Christian should ever react to their temptation by blaming it on God. Now, I'll talk about that in a minute. But first, where is this coming from? Why is James even bringing this up? Well, this is where just a little bit of knowledge of the original Greek goes a long way to helping you understand. Because this this passage, what seals the deal in understanding it, is just this one word in verse 13. The meaning of this word, tempted. It's parazo in verb form or parasmas as a noun form. And I alluded to this a few weeks ago, but this word can be tricky because the one word has two different meanings. It can refer to a trial or the same word can refer to a temptation. It's the same word. Positively, it can refer to putting someone through a test or negatively to put someone through a temptation. So how do you know which is which? How would you know how to translate this word when you see it? Well, the context will tell you and the intent helps. If there's a positive intent, if it's a test given in order to prove someone, well, then it's a trial. But if there's negative intent, if there's a test given to stumble someone, to make them fall into sin, to solicit them to evil, well, then this is a temptation. So I hope that makes sense. In English, we have some words that act like this, just one word with two opposite meanings, like the word sanction. Sanction has a positive sense where it means to approve of something, 
like California, has now sanctioned marijuana use. They have approved of it. But sanction can also have a negative connotation where it means to disapprove of something by way of a penalty. So the U.S. might impose sanctions on Iran disapprovingly of their actions. So one word has a positive and negative sense. They're opposite, and the context will just tell you which is which. So we kind of get this, and that's what's going on with this word here for temptation in verse 13. Now, the thing is, in James, in the first chapter, he's already used this same word twice in noun form. Back in verse 2, he said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, pyrosmos. You could translate that temptations, but that's clearly not the sense. Verse 3 clarifies where he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Verse 3 makes clear these trials are tests and they're designed in order to prove your faith. That you might be approved by God. There's a positive design and intention to these tests. So these are trials. The same goes for verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, pyrosmos. These trials are designed to test the believer, leading to his or her approval. So, for example, you have Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, where it says God tested Abraham. This is a test that clearly came from God. God tested Abraham by telling him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Abraham was to obey God and to endure this trial, even trusting that God was able to raise the dead. This was a test, a trial for Abraham to prove his, his faith. And as Abraham endured, he was approved. This is different from Mark 1.13, for example, where Christ is said to have been led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Same word. Now, was that a trial or a temptation? Well, since Satan showed up and was soliciting Jesus to do evil and disobey God, it pretty clearly that was a temptation. Then Jesus resisted. So hopefully so far, you're just understanding the point that there's a nuanced distinction between trials and temptations in scripture. It's the same word, but there's a difference between the two. Trials and temptations are not the same thing. Now, here's the rub when it comes to James 1. Quite often, if not always, our trials come with temptations, don't they? Our our trials, our testings in life sure seem to come with temptation to sin. We're faced with temptations in our trials. We've been talking lately about the trial of poverty, for example, from James 1. If you're a Christian who's just scraping the bottom of the barrel, just trying to get by, That is a trial. That is a test of their faith that they would trust God more. But nonetheless, doesn't that trial also seem to inherently come with the temptation to, I don't know, maybe covet what others have? I'm sure it does. Or likewise, the trial of sickness does not come with the temptation to doubt God. Or the trial of living with a contentious spouse does not come with the temptation to get angry. And so it goes, all of our outer trials seem to be accompanied by inner temptations. But here's the thing, though. So far, we've established from James, is God responsible for our trials, our testings? Yes. He tested Abraham. He tested Jesus. He tests us. 
These trials come from God. He often sovereignly allows or directs trials in our life, pyrosmos. But it's for our good to test our faith, to strengthen, to refine our faith that we might be approved. He's seeking to mold us into the image of Christ through the refining fire to make us fit for heaven. These are good things, and that's why we're told to consider all of these trials, pyrosmos, as joy. Remember that? Because we understand God has good and great purposes in our trials. And all that's good. We've learned that. I hope you understand that. But the fact that serious temptations seem to come with our trials, it leads us to an important but troubling question. Namely, do, do those come from God too? In other words, if, if it's true that God sends us trials, does that mean he's sending us these temptations as well? If he is sovereignly responsible for the trials in our life, and those come with temptations, doesn't that mean he's, he's tempting us? And if so, wouldn't that call into question the goodness of God? What kind of perfectly righteous God would want to tempt his children and see them fall into sin? What kind of good God would want to breed evil in the lives of his children? So the question is, is God to blame? for our temptations and the resulting sin in our life. And so now you understand where James comes in verse 13. And in strongest terms, he says, no, may it never be. Verse 13, we're forbidden from ever making such an evaluation. This comes right on the heels of verse 12, where he said, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. And most likely James is correcting a misconception in his audience. Chances are some of them were starting to view their trials as provocations to sin. They're going through a rough time. Their faith was being tested, but some of them were failing the test. They were succumbing to all those accompanying temptations. Their lives were a mess. They were depressed. And so they're starting to to ask and to wonder is this all God's fault? He gave me these circumstances. He's in charge, right? He's to blame them. How can I resist God's temptations? But James says, not so fast. Although the same word is used in the Greek, trials and temptations are not the same thing. And it's crystal clear that God is not to blame for your temptations. Those who think otherwise have failed to learn the lesson that God tests his people for their good, and he only wants their good. God never wants to see his children fail or fall into sin ever. So you can't blame God for your temptations or your subsequent fall into sin. And to back this up, James gives two reasons. So let's carry on and look at these two reasons why you can't blame God for your temptations. Two reasons. First, temptation does not fit God's character. Temptation doesn't fit God's character. As he continues in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. The first reason You can't blame God for your temptations. Is that God himself can't even be tempted by evil. 
This is a unique Greek word. It just means untemptable. What is temptation? Temptation is an impulse to sin or to do evil. But God has no desire for sin. He's got no impulse in him at all for evil. Therefore, he's not susceptible to any temptation. There's no, there's no allure to God. He cannot be solicited to do evil. It's just so antithetical to his nature, it's not even possible. And the point James is making is if, if evil is so opposite God's nature, if God has no capacity or desire for evil in his own life, then surely he's not going to desire it in the lives of his children as well. This is not to say that God does not allow evil in a fallen world, but it is to say that all evil is against his moral will. And although he's allowed evil to exist for his greater purposes, God is not the one soliciting us to do evil. In the ancient world, this is not the conception of all the pagan gods. The gods of, of antiquity, they were very much able to do evil, able to be tempted, and they themselves likewise solicited people to do evil all the time. Just read the accounts of, of Greek mythology and the tales of their gods. It reads like a, a soap opera featuring accounts of lies, deception, jealousy, revenge, adultery, rape, incest, murder. The list goes on. These gods were not virtuous. For example, Kronos was one of the first gods, and he feared that his children would overthrow him. So when they were born, he swallowed them one by one. But his wife, Rhea, who was also his sister, saved the last child. She fed him a stone wrapped in swaddling cloths and instead took the real child to safety. And that child was named Zeus. Zeus, when he matured, he overthrew his father, Kronos, and made him cough up his other siblings. And then he shared rule over the world with his older brothers, Poseidon and Hades. Zeus was regarded as the king of the gods, though, but like his father, he was no paragon of virtue. He took his sister, Hera, to be his wife, and he fathered many children, though most of them did not come from Hera. He was known for adultery and rape, and pretty much all the lesser gods or the heroes of men were somehow fathered by Zeus's illicit affairs. Again, these gods were not virtuous, but the God of the Bible stands out among all ancient deities. He's supreme in holiness, righteousness, and goodness. He dwells in unapproachable light. No darkness is within him. He's unstained by evil. He's holy, 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 as we read this morning. His eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. He cannot look on wickedness with favor, Habakkuk 1.13 says. Holiness is one of the essential attributes of the true God. And it quickly becomes clear that all the other gods of the world are mere inventions of man. They are gods made in the image of man. And they reflect all the vices of men. It's not so with the true God, the holy God, who's separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And the point James makes is that such a God with such a character would never entice his people to sin, to do evil. He may allow them to go down a path of evil, yes, as he derives, derives greater glory in both judgment and redemption. 
but God is not to blame for your temptations. Soliciting his children to evil does not fit the character of God. So first, you can't blame God for your temptations because temptation doesn't fit God's character. The second reason James gives, temptation does not fit God's conduct. Temptation does not fit God's conduct. As verse 13 concludes that God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. The second reason you can't blame God for your temptations is that it it just doesn't fit his conduct. This is not an activity that he does. At no time in past, present, or future is God ever partaking in tempting people. And James is emphatic on this point that, that God himself does not tempt anyone. Temptation exists. It's a real thing, but not from God. From us, from others, from Satan, but not from God. Now, I want to clarify here because I bet some of you might be confused. In this regard, yes, God is still sovereign over our temptations, just as he's sovereign over evil, but he's not to blame for our temptations, just as he's not to blame for evil. And to help you understand this, let me give you just two perfect biblical examples. The first, think back to the beginning. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is a perfect paradise. But there's one tree in the middle with one command, don't eat from the tree, for if you do, you will die. Now, was God tempting Adam and Eve by putting the tree there? No, he was not. He was testing them. This was a positive design. God intended and wanted them to pass the test, to obey, to prove holiness and love. This was a test. But as Satan showed up, he turned the tree into a temptation. He was the tempter. And as Satan appears, he warps the desires of Eve and he solicits her to do evil and to disobey God. And at that point, she both fails the test and succumbs to the temptation and falls into sin and death. Now, was God sovereign over Adam and Eve's fall into sin? Absolutely. God put the tree in the garden and he knew full well what was going to happen. And that was part of his bigger plan, though, to magnify his glory, ultimately through redemption in Christ. There had to be a fall. And scripture unapologetically testifies that God is sovereign even over sin, but has got to blame for our sin. And the answer is no. Though he allows it, he's not the tempter. Satan is the tempter. And Adam and Eve acted freely. They are to blame. They acted of their own accord. But later on, though, God confronts Adam and Eve. And how do they respond when confronted over their sin? They pass the buck. They blame shift. Adam blames Eve, but really he blames God. He says, this woman whom you gave me, well, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So it's really your fault, God. I mean, at one day I fell asleep. I woke up. I was missing a rib. This woman was here. So this woman you gave me, he blames God. Eve in turn really blames the devil. She says, the devil made me do it, more or less. But God cursed them all because in reality, they sinned of their own accord. 
God was sovereign over it, but we all bear personal responsibility for our choices and actions. That's how it works. As a second example, think of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And you know that Jesus came as a second Adam to succeed in all the ways where the first Adam failed. And this included overcoming temptation. You know that, right? So this makes perfect sense that he had to be tested like Adam. And his first big test was this, Matthew 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, you might be thinking like, wait, if God doesn't tempt anyone, how is it that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? What's up with that? Well, first understand, God is still not tempting anyone. Satan is the tempter. He's called the tempter in verse 3. He is doing all the temptation here. Satan is the tempter. God may sovereignly allow it, but God is never the agent of temptation. He is never a tempter. But what's happening here is just like the Garden of Eden, that God is ordaining this for Christ from his perspective as a test, to test and prove the faith and faithfulness of of Christ the Messiah. Satan shows up, though, and he's the one who transforms this test into a temptation. But in this case, Jesus both endured the test and overcame, resisted the temptation He succeeded where Adam and Eve failed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But get the point, though. The point is that, yes, there are times when God sovereignly allows us to be tempted. But one, God is never the agent of our temptation. Two, God's design in our trials is always to test our faith. And three, God's will is always that we pass the test. It's his revealed will that we never fall into sin. In fact, isn't that precisely what Paul argued for in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where he says, no temptation, pyrosmos, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God will allow you to be tempted. Yes, he's not the tempter, but he will sovereignly allow you to be tempted, but he will not allow you. He will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to handle, meaning to overcome, to resist. Why? Because his design is that you overcome, that you resist the temptation and endure the trial. And really, this is a good promise to lay hold of that there's always a way of escape. You are never forced to sin. In all here, so far we find from James that we're running out of excuses. You can't blame your temptation and sin on God. And you can't blame your temptation and sin on the fact that it's just too much. You couldn't handle it. Neither are true. Though he may test you, and and though that test may come with some temptation, That temptation did not come from God, and he is not to blame for your sin. So now we we have to ask, obviously, the corresponding question, well, if God's not to blame, who is to blame? Where did that temptation come from? And so a second point here, 
First, God is not to blame for your temptation. Second, now, you are to blame for your temptation. You are to blame for your temptation. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 14. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. By his own lust. Who is to blame for temptation and the path that leads to sin? According to scripture, the answer is you. James just holds up the mirror and says, Here, here's who, who's to blame. Now, first, what I find interesting about this passage is what James does not say. This would be the perfect opportunity for James to blame all of our sin and temptation on the devil. This is it. This is the perfect chance to, to say the devil made me do it. You're overcome. Each one is overcome when he's overpowered by the devil. It's the devil's fault. All of our sin, it's his fault. But James doesn't do that. I mean, what better time to pass the buck to Satan? But he doesn't do that. There are some Christians who do that. Usually of the more extreme charismatic type, they tend to blame Satan demons for just about everything. So if you have a backache, it's a demon. If you have a bad thought about a coworker, a demon put that thought there. Or if you look at something online you shouldn't have, Satan made you do that. And so they spend all their time rebuking Satan and demons when, according to James, we should be spending more time rebuking ourselves, our own lusts. And don't get me wrong, Satan is a tempter. Later in James 4, verse 7, he will say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is real spiritual warfare and we must resist and overcome real spiritual forces. That's true and fair and appropriate. But the kicker is this, Satan is not ultimately to blame for your sin. You are. Even if Satan and demons didn't exist, you would still be tempted all the time and you would still sin all the time. Even if you're on a little island by yourself with a spiritual bubble around it where Satan and demons couldn't get inside, you would still be tempted all the time on that island and you'd still sin all the time. Why? Because you would still have the sinful flesh with its accompanying lusts. Your well is poisoned. And so it's just spewing out bad water. And that's the problem. That's our main problem. And this is why we're ultimately responsible for all of our sins. And so really, we need to talk more here about these lusts. Verse 14. Epithumia is the word. Now today when you hear the word lust, you think sexual desire. But in the Greek, the word just means strong desire for anything, good or bad. It could be a good desire, just strong desire. Now that said, most of the times this word is used to talk about our evil desires, and that's the case here, our sinful desires, our desires that go against God's will. Where did these desires come from? Well, they're just a part of our nature now inherited after the fall. It's just you're born with these desires. After the fall, the heart has become desperately sick and is more deceitful than all else. Jeremiah 17.9 says, God created us in the beginning as creatures to have strong desires and they weren't evil. They were not inherently evil. The desire for food and sleep and pleasure and satisfaction, these are not evil desires in and of themselves. God, in fact, gave us boundaries 
for these desires to be fulfilled for our good and for his glory. But after the fall, our natures are corrupt, our hearts are wicked, and now these desires are all oriented away from God and away from his will. And by nature, now, we do not want to do his will. We want to go outside his boundaries. And so all the desires that we have as humans, they're all now warped and bent toward evil. All of them. This is how the desire for sleep becomes laziness. The desire for food becomes gluttony. The desire for sustenance becomes greed. The desire for sex becomes adultery and immorality. The desire for pleasure becomes drunkenness. The desire for control becomes anger. And most of all, our innate desire to worship becomes idolatry. This is the essence of our inner sin problem. Now, there is good news that it comes in Christ and the new birth. That salvation, that salvation, God gives you a new heart, complete with a new nature and new desires. When you're saved by faith in Christ, you're given new desires now oriented toward God, where now you want to do what is right. But the, the only problem is, at our initial salvation, you know, before glorification, our old desires are not taken away. The new birth does not eradicate the lusts of the flesh. So now, if you're a Christian, you have, and you, you know this experience, two competing sets of desires within you. Like Paul himself testified in Romans 7, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And you see, if you succumb to the desires of the flesh, which you still have, even as a Christian, if you follow them, they're going to lead you away from the Lord and into sin, even as, even as Christians. And now, verse 14, this is the process James is describing. It's the process where the, the born-again believer nonetheless follows the lust of their flesh. And so this passage instructs us now on the life cycle of sin. The life cycle of sin. In the, in the world of biblical counseling, this passage is often used and, and summarized by four D's. And I want to give them to you because it's so helpful. To help you understand the life cycle of sin. It starts with desire. Desire. As we've seen, these lusts, they exist within us. They're a part of our fallen nature and they're not eradicated when we come to Christ. And part of our overcoming though is to acknowledge that evil is present within you. Like Paul testified, evil is in you. You have to own the fact that your own sinful flesh desperately wants you to sin. Yours, mine, all of our flesh wants you to sin. And it's just a matter of time before an object of desire presents itself. And now you're going to face temptation from those lusts. Accordingly, next comes deception in the life cycle of sin. Desire, secondly, deception. Look again at verse 14. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Most believe James is using fishing imagery with these words here. Carried away means drawn out. I've done some rock cod fishing here on the central coast. And rock cod are known for hiding in the rocks in little layers, waiting for prey to come right in front of them. And if you want to catch rock cod, you've got to dangle bait 
right in front of their noses to draw them out. And it will draw them out of the rocks. That begins the process of them being carried away. This is paired with enticement. Verse 14. Into the fish, that, that worm or that shrimp or that piece of squid is just irresistible. It's too enticing. It appeals to their desires and it makes them overlook the dangers of coming out of the rock. They don't see the shiny hook sticking out of the back of the bait wanting to take them away. You see, that hook is waiting to capture them, and it will take them somewhere they don't want to go. And so it goes with us. This is how temptation forms, and this is where it comes from. It starts with our own fallen desires. We want to go our own way, and we're easily enticed by some object of our desire. Some proposition of sin incites our lusts, and we are then deceived. Our flesh tells us, you want to eat that fruit. It, it's pleasing to the eyes. It's good for food. It's desirable to make one wise. You should take that. And so the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life conspire together inside of us to drag us away into sin. You know, these verbs are all in the passive here, indicating that this is something that happens to us. We are forcibly being carried away, but understand who's to blame. Who is deceiving us here? It's not God. It's not Satan. It's your own flesh. It's you. And if you don't resist the flesh, deny the flesh, deny yourself, flee the temptation, well, you will be carried away. And so next comes disobedience. The third D, disobedience. Verse 15 now, look there. He says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So far, we've just been talking about temptation. Temptation forms when your sinful desires are incited by an object of desire. But you have a small window to resist, to turn away, and to flee that temptation. You need to find the way of escape that the Lord has provided and take it. But if you don't, if you don't control yourself and deny your flesh, you're going to rationalize your sin and you're going to be carried away. It's a quick side note here. This passage tells us that temptation is not sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's not unrighteous to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. What matters most is how you respond. And the window is short, but you have an opportunity to deny the bait and turn away. Will you get hooked or not? That, that's on you. If you give in to the lust, though, and go after that temptation, well, he says lust conceives and gives birth to sin. Now James switches metaphors from fishing to childbirth and the result of the union of our lusts and temptation is sin or disobedience. Disobedience is spawned, which every time amounts to rebellion against God. When your desires capture your soul and master you, you lose sight of God and his glory. And even as Christians, when we sin, it's not that we hate God. It's just that we forget God. In that moment, we forget his joy. We forget his glory. We buy the lie that, that sin is better. This will make us happier. Sin promises to give, but it never gives. It always 
takes away. It will rob you of your joy and leave you empty. Desire plus deception gives birth to disobedience, which is sin. But then after that, sin takes on a life of its own. It starts to build and grow and it fosters ruin and suffering and hardship in life. This bait that promised something good, it only brings sorrow and promised satisfaction. But as we're now hooked and reeled away, we find only loss. Eventually, sin itself becomes fully grown. And then sin becomes apparent too. If lust is the mother of sin, sin is the mother of death. And that's the fourth D in the life cycle of sin, death. Verse 15, finishing. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James continues the birth metaphor here. This this word for bring forth also speaks of birth. And when sin is fully grown, it ultimately itself gives birth to death. You see the juxtaposition between birth and death. It's painting a pretty obvious picture. That temptation promises us life to the fullest, but only gives us death. Here, living death and then eternal death. The birth of our sin leads only to the birth of our death. It's kind of like contracting a deadly virus. You're you're pricked. Your blood is infected. You're not dead right then and there, but you're a dead man walking. And as that virus multiplies and, and forms in you, eventually it will claim your life. And, and so it goes with sin. Sin comes with consequences, namely an eternal death. On the day when your soul is demanded of you, you will die forever. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It produces nothing but loss in this life and then an eternal loss in the next. I trust that's not something you want. Eternal death, separation from God's goodness. What's ironic, though, is even Christians, though, at times, they grumble and complain at God for all the trials in their life. They start to blame God and and even their hearts maybe curse God for all of the hard things they're going through. But what have we learned from James? What has James taught? What's God's intention and design in our hardships, in our trials? Is he trying to harm us and crush us and ruin us? No, he's trying to, verse 3, produce endurance. Verse 4, he's perfecting us. Also that by his preservation and our perseverance, we might, verse 12, receive the crown of life. I mean, to think that we sit there sometimes blaming God or complaining against God for the trials in our life when all he's trying to do is save us from sin. And give us this crown of life, which he will. But some go their own way. They turn away from God. They choose their own sin. And those who fall away will learn the hard way that the sin that promised joy, they'll find no crown of life. They'll only find the chains of death. Desire, deception, disobedience, and then death. This is the life cycle of sin. There is good news. Again, there's hope which we'll actually learn about in the next passage. It's found in Christ. 
You see, our problem after the fall is not just that we have these lusts of the flesh. Our problem is that we're enslaved to them. Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And likewise, Ephesians 2.3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, we have a nature problem, a corrupt nature. Do you know why fishing works? Because fish can't help it. It's in their nature. If the right bait is presented right in front of their noses, they will strike at it. They they can't help it. They're slaves to their nature. And so are we. Because of our fallen nature, we're enslaved to our lusts, which means we're also slaves to sin and death. But the good news is that Jesus came to rescue captives and set sinners free. And Ephesians 2, 4 continues, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And this is our hope. It's new birth in Christ, which comes with new desires. And it frees us from that slavery to sin. We may still have our lust of the flesh, but we're no longer enslaved to them. We're enslaved now to the Lord. The second birth comes by God's love for us as his grace gift. And we'll find soon, James will tell us about the grace gift of new birth in Christ. The same word used to speak of the birth of death is used in the next passage to speak of our, our second birth unto life. And so we'll see that next time. But you know, you don't need to wait till next time to go to Christ. And so I would urge you to go to Christ now. He is the only savior, the one who gave himself for our redemption by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. On the day of judgment, You'll have no one to blame but yourself. No excuse will get you out. But only those who have faith in Christ will have an advocate on that day, a defender where Christ himself will stand up for us and point to his shed blood as the complete payment for our sins. And by that, we will be saved. And in the meantime, even Christ enables you to break the cycle of sin and death He is the one who gives you true life and joy to the fullest. So go to him again and again. He's your only hope. A hope we will happily learn about next time. As a final word, though, to conclude, if you would humor me for a tie-in. And today is Mother's Day. And this surely wasn't the the feel-good Mother's Day message you were probably expecting. But I'll tell you what, for the mothers especially, I would hope you would become masters of this teaching from Scripture, both for your own lives, but also for your kids. Do you know how valuable this teaching is for parenting? Listen, why do your children disobey you? Why do they sin against you and not do what you say and do what is wrong? The answer, the devil didn't make them do it. Rather, they came with their own set of sinful desires, which they inherited from you, by the way. The desires of their flesh lead them into sin the same as you. And so understand, 
Your children don't merely have a behavior problem. They have a nature problem. They, like us, were born children of wrath. And when you understand this teaching, it transforms your parenting perspective. Where you know your kids, they don't just need behavior modification. We will address behavior, absolutely. But they don't primarily need just behavior modification. They need transformation. They need new birth, just like us. Which means they need Christ, just like us. And so mothers, give your kids Christ. Show them Christ. Teach them Christ. Model to them Christ. Share with them Christ each and every day that you might lead them to Christ through the gospel. Like the mother of Paul, feed your kids the word of God, which is able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the greatest gift you could give to them by God's grace. And that is the greatest honor of Christian motherhood. And so there, now you can say you had a special Mother's Day sermon. It's just for you. Next time we'll come back, we'll learn more about how Christ answers the birth of death. Today, this passage, the birth of death. Next passage, the death of death. Let's pray. Our Lord God Almighty in heaven, we we thank and praise you this morning for your word as we hear it. It's so convicting, Lord, because your wisdom comes out and that you know how we operate better than the, the greatest psychologists of this world. You contain more, your word contains more wisdom than the, all the w- wisdom of men put together. You know exactly how our hearts operate and you just you cut us open with your word. You lay us bare. You expose the sin that lives within, Lord. But we thank you for that, that you would reveal the hidden cancer within us, the lusts of our flesh. We praise you for the new birth by which we're given new desires and a new heart for you. If there are any here, Lord, who, who don't have that love for you and who don't love your ways, who still scorn you, I pray you would convict them and, and show them that the wages of sin is death and they will only suffer now and suffer later more apart from Christ. But show them life and joy and humility and breaking them to, show, to see Christ. And for us who have them, Lord, we, we want to wage war against the lusts of our flesh. But we thank you for redemption. We thank you for showing us our sin that we might overcome. You desire our best. You're our good heavenly father. You don't tempt us. You don't want us to ever sin, Lord, but in fact, rather always provide a way of escape that we might stand up and endure. So be it trials or temptations, Lord, help us to endure, to keep pressing on, to be faithful, and that we might reach heaven's shores and find Christ there, our savior now and forever. He will take us there. May we be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.